I wonder, can you remember the last time the electricity went off in your house? Since moving to Belfast six years ago, I can't remember a time when the electricity went off unscheduled. There was once or twice where we got our little note through the door to be prepared for two or three hours of maintenance work. But can you remember the last time that the electricity went off in your home or in your place of work? I guess in modern buildings these days, it's, uh, if, you get lo- if the electricity gets off in work, you get locked in quite uh, fantastically. What do you do when it happens? For children growing up in our house, we knew exactly where the torch was in every room because we lived at the end of the line. In other words, there were X number of houses ahead of us in getting electricity, and one gust of wind would have knocked our electric off for an hour or two. So as children, we were instructed where to find our uh, torches uh, to get ready uh, for whatever, however long uh, the power outage would be. As we grew up, we were trusted with lighting candles and oil lamps and things like that. As children, it was exciting. You got to walk around your house with a torch. But soon you were ushered into one room because with no electricity, there was no heat, no uh, solid fuel fires or anything like that in the house to, to heat us. So we all had to get into one room. Eventually it would get very boring. No television, no video games, no radio that we could access. Before too long we were wanting to get back to normal life as we saw it with electricity. Food was done on an old two-ring stove that you had to make do with whatever you could. So as kids, we were eager for the light to come on, and then it would, and life would go back to its, uh, its normality, and we could get on with what we were doing. I think we all know how valuable light is. Think about it in the morning, especially these dark mornings. As the alarm goes off, you struggle to knock off the alarm, you turn on the light, and you're blinded uh, by what comes out of the little bulb at your bedside table. Once we get over that, we do know its value to be able to move around the house and get ready for the day. Light for us is a precious thing. And it was no different over 2,000 years ago in biblical Palestine. The day worked around sunrise to sunset. That's how it functioned. Life started just before sunrise. You got up. Uh, You got a little bit of your house ready, and as the sun came up, then you could go out and you could do what you needed to do. Of course, once darkness started to fall, you very quickly made sure you were in your house because you couldn't trust the darkness. You couldn't trust an animal that might be out in the path, or you couldn't trust someone who had uh, anything sinister in mind. So life In biblical Palestine, valued light. Jesus comes onto the scene at this great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been covering it now. This is our third week of this one event that started in chapter 7. Jesus coming to the Feast of Tabernacles. He's come and people are questioning who he is. And the first thing he tells them, one of the biggest statements Jesus says, is that he's like a stream of living water that will never dry and those who, who drink from it will, never, will uh, never be thirsty again, and they will never dry up spiritually. And now Jesus comes to the second strong motif of this celebration, the light. 
Jesus is in the temple courts. Verse 20 tells us that it's the, the women's court. This is a place where the women would come and do their religious activity. And in Jerusalem, in this court were set two large beacons, cauldron-like beacons, that would burn throughout the festival, illuminating the whole of Jerusalem. The significance being this Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths as it's called now, was about remembering the exile and the wilderness years of the children of Israel, where God was their provider, but God was also their leader. God provided water, that, that's why Jesus used that motif of water, and now he uses light as his second motif. In Exodus we read how the wilderness years happened. They were led by a pillar of cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night. So each year at the temple, these huge beacons lit up the sky so that the people would remember God's faithfulness in leading them through the wilderness and into the promised land. Jesus is speaking at the final day of the feast. Those cauldrons or or beacons have been extinguished, if not starting to be taken down. The light is no more. And here is Jesus standing in this court of the temple, declaring that he is the light of the world. We probably don't get it. But Jesus is completely changing the thinking of the people who will hear him. They have looked to the religious ways of how they have been told to worship God. All the added extra bits that have been thrown in over the years about how to get to God. That's what they've been following as what they believe to be the light. Jesus says, no longer will this religious system be the light to the world. No, it's going to happen in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a powerful moment in the teaching of Jesus. Later, we'll, we'll see it more so by his language that he, he uses. But here, Jesus is saying that he is God. He is the one who is the light of the world. He is the one who will bring people to salvation. In verses 13 to 30, Jesus starts a debate with the Pharisees, these religious leaders. And the debate settles around this claim, or it's, it's all about this claim of Jesus to be the light of the world. The, the Pharisees are challenging him, how can you say this about yourself? There was a very uh, precise procedure about how you could be a witness to your own testimony, which Jesus talked about in John 5, verses 31 to 47. It almost seems that the Pharisees are bringing this up to try and trap Jesus because it appears that he is contradicting himself, but he's not. Previously, Jesus had said, definitely there must be two witnesses I am one and John the Baptist is the other in John chapter 5. But here Jesus is saying, I am a witness, but my father is a witness also. 
The Pharisees don't like this. They, they can't settle for this because where is Jesus' father? Where is he? We can't see him. Most likely, according to biblical history, Joseph, who they would believe uh, to be the father of Jesus, has long, uh, or well, has died at some point. And so they're looking for his father, completely ignoring what Jesus is doing. He's taking it from this worldly view to the heavenly view. He's taking it from that earthly dimension to the spiritual dimension. And he wants to bring the Pharisees with him, but they are refusing, as they have done time and time again, to go with Jesus into the spiritual realm and the spiritual dimension of Jesus' ministry. Simply put, they don't know Jesus because they don't know his Father. They are unwilling to accept that Jesus dares to call God Yahweh, the name that, that couldn't be mentioned, that Jesus would dare to call him his Father. Jesus reveals the human heart that is in front of him and says that it cannot know God the Father when it is consumed with the things of this world. For the Pharisees, they can only frame an understanding of what they know in this world. And Jesus states that unless they know that uh, Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus will die uh, for them, well then they're going to die in their sins because of their view, their small view of God. Jesus' claim is that there is only one way to God and it's through him. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And he'll explain that to his disciples in chapter 14 of John's Gospel. See, the world would have us believe that our own definition of what is good will lead us to God. That's what the world wants us to believe. It will tell us as long as you do what is right in your own eyes and you don't hurt anyone, well then you're fine. You will get to whatever eternity you think you're going to get to. Jesus completely blows this idea out of the water and says that there is only one way to God and that is through a knowledge of the true Jesus Christ. And this is what John is doing in his gospel. He's trying to help us to see the real and the true Jesus. That he is the one and only way to eternal life in that heavenly kingdom that the Father has prepared for us. See, the world hates this notion that there is only one way to God. But this is how it is. This is how Jesus says it is. It's through him. It's not up to us to determine a correct way. If it were, then any way and absolutely no way at all would get us to a kingdom. The thing is, it would be a kingdom that we would be building. A kingdom that we would be making up as we go along. Ultimately, Jesus says, to stay in sin will lead us to death, verse 24. We will die in our sins. He puts it quite clearly. To ignore what God has for us and to attempt to create our own method of salvation will lead us straight to eternal death. Jesus very clearly says it in John chapter 8. We can't get away from this truth. The world will want us to dilute it. 
Satan will have his day in trying to convince us that there are other ways, standards of this world. But Jesus says, no, to avoid eternal death, we must follow the way that God has for us. Jesus has presented this to the Pharisees and in doing so he presents it to us. He asks us the question as he digs into the lives of the Pharisees. Are you making up your guidelines of religion as you go along? Or are you submitting to the way that God has? See, making it up as we go along will only lead us to death because we make religion about us. It's about what I like and what I don't like. It's about what I choose to opt into and what I choose to opt out of. Submitting to God's way will lead us to him because what Jesus or what God presents to us in the life that he has for us is all about Jesus. And this is what he is saying in John 8. There is only one way the light of the world, the one who will lead us to salvation is Jesus Christ. And so we have a problem. Our generation and the generation that has gone before us have told us that to obey the standards of another is to forgo our freedom. Freedom was redefined probably around the 60s That it's about what I want and what I choose to do. To kick away from institutions, to kick away from those elected above us, to to make my life about my way and the way that I want it to go. I think we all can see that ways where each individual chooses how society goes, about how we interact with society, at times can lead to anarchy. Because it's simply about me. Jesus comes and says that actually, no, that's not freedom at all. True freedom is only found in him. And this is where Jesus takes us in verses 31 to 59. Jesus turns his attention at the, uh, the start of verse 31 there to those who have put their faith in him. There, there's two accounts at this feast where people follow Jesus. The first is whenever they believe that he is the Christ. They genuinely believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And then, now, it records that following this, some put their faith in him. Jesus begins to teach his followers and saying, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This statement drives the conversation from verse 33 to the end of the chapter. And immediately we see why Jesus talks about truth and freedom. He teaches it throughout this section. And at each point, the people come back with a retort. They challenge what Jesus has said. They go something like this. Verse 33, they say, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Verse 41, they challenge Jesus, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. In verse 48, they accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan and being demon-possessed. 
And then finally in verse 53, they ask him the question that Jesus longs for them to ask. Who do you think you are? Of course, they phrase it in a way that we would expect from these people questioning Jesus. In these four responses to Jesus, we learn about the true heart of those who said that they would follow him. But clearly, they weren't getting the full picture of who Jesus really was. Verse 33, let's start there. They say, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? In this verse, the people question why they need to be set free. They claim that they have never been slaves to anyone. The irony here, you cannot miss it. If you've been following what we've been saying about the setting of this account in John's Gospel... What have they just celebrated? They have celebrated an exile from slavery, where they were in bondage to the Egyptians. And here they say, we have never been slaves to anyone. But think about the actual historical moment of John 8. They were not their own ruling people. They were under the authority of the Roman Empire. They were not free to be Jews as they wanted. They had been pushed into this little bit of of Palestine, but they were very much controlled by the Romans. And yet they're saying to Jesus, we don't need to be set free because we are free. We have never been enslaved to anyone. See, what Jesus is doing, as Jesus always does, is goes to the heart of the matter. And says that they are slaves, not to the powers of this world, but they are slaves to sin. Simply put, we do not become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are born as sinners. The life that Jesus offers sets us free from this bondage of sin. We have a new life and a new standard to follow. So that's their retort in verse 33. It's not about being slaves to powers of this world, but about being a slave to sin. Secondly, in verse 41, they say that the only father they have is God himself. Jesus very quickly deals with this and wraps it up very quickly by saying that they are children of the devil. Verses 42 to 47. Listen to how Jesus describes the devil. This this is... Amazing stuff that Jesus says. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the devil. That's Satan. The father of lies, whose, whose native tongue is, is telling lies. He's always been a deceiver, making humankind believe that he speaks the truth. He is a murderer because ultimately his way is the way of death. See, there are two who are fighting for us. There's God who comes to us. And calls us to follow him. And he fights on our behalf. 
He fights for us to let go of the other one who is fighting on his own behalf to capture our hearts for his purpose, the devil. Jesus says that we cannot know God if we are letting our hearts be taken captive by the devil. And the devil, being the master of lives, convinces us that true freedom comes from making our own decisions and setting our own agenda. Focusing on what is important to us and living a life that centers around ourselves. This is a lie. It isn't freedom. If we think this, this is allowing ourselves to be deceived into thinking that this will lead us to the eternity that we want to go to. And it is all lies. The devil tells us that following Jesus and the way of God... um, is about being in shackles. It's about being in bondage to the great organ grinder who plays the tune. On the contrary, Jesus claims that it is in him where true freedom is found. Let me illustrate this. There's a story from Australia that talks about a snake. A snake manages to enter a home one day and sees a canary in a cage. It decided that the bird would make a tasty morsel and so went through the bars of the cage and devoured the bird. Unfortunately, once the bird was in its throat, the snake was too big to get back out of the cage again. It was a prisoner of appetite. This is an image of what the world is teaching us. We have refused to accept the moral limits which the Creator has placed upon us. We are determined to go our own way through the bars. And when we do, we find that we are not free at all, but rather we are imprisoned in bondage to the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Bruce Milne comments on this. The notion of the radically independent individual who can do as he or she may please without reference to any other authority, an image regularly celebrated in post-enlightenment culture, is in fact a man of straw. This free person is a myth who never existed and who never will. The third retort that the people bring to Jesus is in verse 48. And this is questioning, is Jesus for real? Did you see the subtle little insult that they threw at him? The little bit of name calling? They accuse him of being a Samaritan. Let me help you frame that for modern day culture as we would know it. That's like calling a proudly national Scotsman British. Unless, of course, they're winning at tennis and then we're quite happy to claim them as British. Or a staunch Eurosceptic and calling them a European For the Jews, this is them digging down deep to get the worst insult they can possibly imagine. And they say, you're not for real, you're not a Jew, you're a Samaritan. You're a half-breed. That's what they're calling Jesus. They're saying, you know, we're sick and tired of you now, so we're just going to label you a Samaritan so that actually, religiously, we can walk away from you without feeling any guilt on our own conscience. But this time, for once, the people go beyond the exterior and they go internally and they challenge the very core of Jesus. 
They challenge his spiritual nature because what do they say? They say that you are demon-possessed. In other words, they are questioning his character. Jesus' simple reply is that he has done everything of the will of his Father God. If the people were to know God, then they would know and see that Jesus was who he said he was. And in this challenge to his personality, Jesus brings hope to the people. In verse 51, he tells them that if anyone keeps his word, they will never see death. Here is the exact opposite of what the devil is about. The devil is all about death, but Jesus is all about life. The truth cannot be any clearer than what Jesus presents in these verses. Finally, the people go back to their heritage, and in their final challenge, they actually challenge Jesus' eternal claims. They ask the question that Jesus has been waiting for, as we said earlier, who do you think you are? Because Jesus talks about not seeing death, and the people interpret this on human terms, on earthly terms, they go to the father of the nation and say that even Abraham died. There's no greater one to look to. The father of the nation, you say you're super spiritual? Well, the poster boy is Abraham. He's the one that we look to as the most spiritual of all, and even he died. So who do you think you are? They ask Jesus, do you actually think you are greater than Abraham? Jesus answers them, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you remember at the start I said that there was going to be a language moment? This is it. Two simple words. I am. This is game, set, and match. Because Jesus is digging deep into the very soul of the Jewish religion and pulling out what is so precious to them. What have they just celebrated? They have celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, that moment of being led and being kept by God. Where did it all begin? It all began with God hearing the cries of his people and bringing Moses to the burning bush in Exodus 3. And at that moment, Moses asks, When I go, who shall I say sent me? And what does God say? Two little words, I am. Jesus, in these words, is saying that he is the son of the living God. And more than that, he is God. He has compounded where he started. I am the light of the world. I am now the light that's going to lead you to salvation because I am. That's enough. The people know this language. The people know what this means. And we know they don't like it because right at the very end, they go and follow the desires of their true father. They lift their stones and they go to throw them at Jesus. The father who is the murderer. The father who is all about death. The devil. Jesus slips away without harm. So let's wrap this up. There have been two conversations in this passage this morning. The first, where Jesus started talking about being the light of the world, was to the Pharisees. The second is to his disciples, the people who follow him. But they've all centered around 
truth and freedom. The truth is that Jesus is the light of the world. That is the truth. He is the one who will lead us to salvation. And using this motif as well as the the water motif that we, we know now from this feast, Jesus claims that God is the only way and that is absolute truth. Jesus was before time, in time, and throughout all of time, and that's why he can say that he is God. And it is in Jesus that we get true, total freedom. Are we free? Or are we still in bondage, shackled to how we came into this world? Born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Because if we are, there is a way to break those shackles. There is a way to break those chains that so easily ensnare us and tangle us. And it's by coming to Jesus. Knowing his freedom. And allowing us to live in his way. A true free way. But John has also presented Jesus to his followers. We call this journey um, of discovering Jesus our discipleship. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, how do you respond to what Jesus is claiming about truth and about freedom? You see, there is the same question, are we truly free? Do we truly know Jesus as we claim his name? Or are we choosing the bits we like and the bits we don't like and creating our own Jesus, the one that we like, rather than the one that John presents to us as the truth? Discipleship means that we want to be knowers and fighters of truth and freedom. Because that is the mark on our lives, that is the battle that we want to be fighting. Truth and freedom. This means for us that we must go regularly to the one who is the source of that, Jesus Christ. The challenge to disciples is are you continuing to meet with Jesus in God's word and living his life or or do you think you've made it And that there's nothing more to learn. Because Jesus says we continue to need to know truth and freedom in our lives. He invites us. He invites each of us to come to him to know him. To regularly meet with him. And I imagine regularly isn't defined by an hour or two on a Sunday. Jesus says... Come. Find out a little bit more today and a little bit more tomorrow. Learn what truth, learn what freedom is. And then Jesus says, If you do this, it's no magic formula, but in this you will find the best of life. Do we want? the best of life? Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is rich with symbolism, imagery, 
but it's also deep in challenge. It challenges us to to look at Jesus afresh each day in the light of Scripture. So help us as we do this to understand who Jesus is and what he calls us to. This, This wonderful life where we are free from bondage, where we are free from this hold of sin. Help us to walk in this way of freedom and of truth. Continue to draw us to yourself so that in this world as your disciples, we will respond to you and to the world around us in the way that you desire us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.